uh, friends, you heal loved ones, you restore relationships. We are praying, every one of us in this room has some sort of miracle that we are praying for. And the hard part for us, Lord, is that we're called to trust you and realize that maybe the miracle is something different than what you have or what we are looking for. And so in a world where we can't trust anything, we're trusting ourselves to think we know what's best in this world, we trust you. You are the God of miracles. And the greatest miracle that you've given us is the gift of life in you. And that we might join you not only in the here and now, but in the world to come, in your kingdom to come when we are all together forever. And so whatever we're praying for this morning, Father, I do pray that you hear the prayers of my brothers and sisters. If it is within your will, I pray that you give them the desire of their heart. But I also pray that we all have desires in our hearts that mold the desires that you have for all of us. We thank you with such tremendous gratitude that we can all be in the same place together as a preview of the things that are to come for all of us. Give Joe boldness as he declares your word today. Be with him. And we thank you in the name of your son. Amen. You may be seated. It's, um, it's, I know, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try not to cry, but it's been a pretty emotional week for our church at Grace Life. Uh, stick around at the end after the message uh, for a little discussion about that regarding our dear sister Meredith, and we're going to talk about that at the end. But um, it is, uh, is an interesting time in our church life. Yeah, let them know that's pretty loud. Who, who's, who's out there speaking on that TV? Is that me? <laughs> Just tell them to turn it down. And uh, yeah, thanks. Um, so <clears throat> that was really good what I said. <clears throat> so the last several weeks, the last few months, every sermon, and it hasn't been because we're doing a topical series, but it's gone right through with the Gospel of Mark. It's been relative to this this pandemic with COVID-19 and social distancing and, and then the, the racial, uh, you know, the racism and the social unrest with that and, the, and the, the violence and all those things. It's all kind of fit right into the sermon. And, but don't worry, this week, it's not going to be so harsh. I've decided this week, we're not going to talk about all that other stuff. We're just going to talk about total human depravity. How's that? Is that better? <laughs> A little bit... <laughs> So have you ever been, by the way, this is week, 20, week 33 of our series on the Gospel of Mark, and I am, I've entitled this message, Ambush at the Dock. Ambushed at the Dock. So <clears throat> have you ever had a conversation about spiritual things with someone, somehow spirituality comes up, and the response is, well, I'm, I'm a very spiritual person. But they don't mean... Jesus, but rather an innate ability to process the spiritual world in a broader fashion around them. Like, I'm connected to the world spiritually, but not through Jesus. I'm connected spiritually. What does that mean? Well, it just means spiritually. And they believe their spirituality manifests itself in many ways that we will explore later. We'll look at that. But I have found Discussing spiritual things with very spiritual people 
is extremely frustrating. <laughs> it's like grabbing jello. Like, it's like, well, yeah, but you're spirit. Well, yeah, but what does it mean? Well, it just means I'm spirit. What, what do you mean you're spiritual? Moral or spiritual absolutes, logic or systematic theology are irrelevant and impotent because all of their spirituality, frankly, is very subjective. And honestly, it's often like a complete, feels like when I'm talking to somebody who says they're spiritual but not really Jesus, I feel like sometimes it's a complete waste of time. Something that Jesus most definitely felt in today's passage, Mark chapter 8, 10 through 13. And immediately he got into a boat with his disciples. This is he's leaving the Gentile regions, going across the Sea of Galilee, back to Galilee, back to where Jewish people live. And immediately he got into a boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking, him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got back in the boat, and went back to the other side. <laughs> that was it. So let's talk about the history of this passage. I want to talk about enemies united. This is the very end of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. It's, he's getting ready to go to Judea, and he's leaving this region for good. And this is actually his final recorded conflict with religious leaders in Galilee. Now, Matthew's version of this story, the Gospel of Matthew, includes both Pharisees and Sadducees in this final confrontation. They have actually joined forces together with Jesus. And while both of these groups were leading spiritual Jewish groups, they actually hated each other. I mean, with a white-hot passion, they hated each other. Theologically, socially, spiritually, culturally, they despised each other. Yes, even worse than Republicans and Democrats. Even worse than Trump and Pelosi. They hated each other. So let's talk about why. I want to talk about who the Pharisees were. These were orthodox, strict legalists. They were strict interpreters of what I talked about a few weeks ago of the Talmud, the man-made religious laws. They very strictly interpreted them and maybe added to them to make them more strict. These are actually the forerunners of what we know today as the Hasidic Jew or the Hasidic movement. Hasidim, the word where Hasidic comes from, it means pious, saintly, very conservative. This is who the Pharisees were. They adhered to and imposed on others all religious rituals, the dietary laws. They're ultra-Orthodox, they're extremely powerful, and they are feared. They're fully committed to Judaism. They despise anything Greek, the people or the culture, any Gentile person, anything to do with Gentiles, they reject. They resented Rome. Dictating law, they resented Rome having influence on Jewish culture. They wanted full control over all Jewish regions. They wanted big government Rome out of their lives. And then we have the Sadducees. Who are these? The Sadducees are anything but conservative. They liked big government Rome. Matter of fact, they wanted it. They invited it. They, they embraced it. 
And they made tons of money, just like the Pharisees made tons of money hating Rome, the Sadducees made tons of money partnering with big Rome. They were Roman appeasers. They were awash in Roman money and influence. They loved Gentile culture because it made them money. They loved being a part of the Roman aristocracy and all the big government money and power that came with it. They rejected tradition. They rejected the Old Testament prophets. They scoffed at anything religious. But they were spiritual. Don't get me wrong. They were like spiritual agnostics or spiritual atheists. With Rome's permission, they actually, these spiritual agnostics, these spiritual atheists, they actually ran the temple business, which is ironic. And they would send kickbacks to Rome, of course. Let me explain to you how they ran the temple business. They had this incredible racket where people would come with their animals to do sacrifice, and they would have to go through Sadducee um, inspection. And as people brought their animals, the Sadducees 90% of the time would say, no, that animal is unfit to be used as a sacrifice. And you're going to have to purchase one of these animals from us. But the problem with that is they wouldn't accept Roman money. They would only accept temple dollars, currency they made. So they set up this extraordinary, extortionary, money-changing operation. And the people would come in, the Jews would come in with their animals, the animals would be rejected, and the Jews would say, well, we've come all this way, we have to do a sacrifice. Oh, don't worry, you can buy this animal. Great, how much is it? Well, it is five temple dollars. I don't have temple dollars. Well, what do you have in Roman money? Oh, okay, so what they would do is they would exchange Roman money for pennies on the denarii for temple money. They lose a ton, the, the people traveling on this money changing, and then they could buy animals for sacrifice from the Sadducees. This is actually the group that Jesus targeted, if you remember, when he overturned the money changing temples or money changing tables in the temple. This is the group, the liberal big government, money people. They were hated by everyone. They were the epitome of what people would call the temple swamp. So you have these two groups, the very conservative ones and the very liberal ones. They can't stand each other, but we have unity at the dock. These groups never agreed on anything. They hated each other, but they have a common enemy. It's Jesus and they all want to silence him because he has condemned both groups continuously. According to Jesus, the hypocritical Pharisees have been wasting their time with their ridiculous religious legalism. And according to Jesus, the Sadducees are immoral frauds who love the Roman government more than Jehovah. Both of these groups hate Jesus. They hate the gospel. They hate the gospel requiring brokenness and humility from them. They hate the fact that he's saying you have to rely upon me for salvation instead of your religion or your Roman government. And as soon as, think about this, as soon as Jesus gets off the boat, fresh off his Gentile missions, both these groups who can't stand each other combine and they ambush him together at the dock. They want a miracle. They want him to prove he's God. Interestingly enough, this is the same challenge that Jesus faced in the wilderness with Satan, is it not? 
if you truly are God, do this. Or if you truly, it, it's the same thing. Makes you wonder who's on what side. Isn't that interesting? So let's talk about the spiritual. What about Jesus or what about God? What is he doing? Why and how does he do it? I want to, this is a, you know, I, I love Seinfeld. Not, no signs for you. <laughs> Come back one millennia. I want to talk about these spiritual, uh, first of all, I want you to understand that Jesus is exasperated. So imagine after months ministering to Gentiles, the first thing he sees are these shiny, shallow men. People considering themselves very spiritual, very elite. They are, in fact, a cut above everyone else, and they have the robes to prove it. They have all the outward manifestations of two different types of human spirituality. One is religious and one is secular. But they're both frauds. They want Jesus to prove himself, not because they want to follow him. If you prove it, we'll follow you. No, they want to discredit him. It's like many people today using a fallen world as a reason to reject Jesus and the spiritual responsibility that his gospel demands that we take. It may sound like this today. If God is real, why does he allow racism or hurricanes or earthquakes or poverty poverty or communism or war? Come on, Jesus, if you really are real, real why don't you just wipe out hunger and violence and catastrophes? I'm not interested in that kind of a God that allows those things. Never mind that except for the hurricanes, most of those things are a result of human free will. Let's not even get into that, shall we? But it's kind of the same way. It's an arrogant spiritual condition that demands, okay, God, you want my trust? Prove you're worthy. Prove it. Here's the problem. These guys are in the presence of God and they don't realize he has the ability to forgive them and they also don't realize they have massive need of that forgiveness. So Jesus is exasperated. He gets off the boat. He's being accosted by these very spiritual people who think they know everything. If there was ever a moment that Jesus displayed his humanity, it is right here. It's pretty amazing, right? Mark says, Mark says Jesus sighs deeply. Now, this is the second time, if you remember last week, this is the second time he's actually sighed in this chapter. But this time it's different. The first time he sighed out of deep love and compassion for a hungry Gentile sitting in the dirt. He sighed deeply and said, I have great compassion for them. I want to feed them. This time, it's a sigh out of exasperation and disgust directed toward the cream of the Jewish crop. The contrast of these two sighs is quite stunning, is it not? Then he calls them a perverse generation. They say, show us a sign. He sighs. You are a perverse generation. That sounds like a throwaway line, right? It is not. It is a phrase these very educated Jews would recognize instantly. Because Moses used this phrase in the Song of Moses right at the end of Deuteronomy to describe the condition of Israel at that time. It is a perverse generation. So when they hear that phrase, they know, wait a minute, he's saying we are as bad as Israel was right at the end of Deuteronomy. No way! 
See, they knew exactly what he meant. It was in some ways a Jewish dog whistle for saying, you know what, you suck. That's really what he's saying here. You are a perverse generation. And this would have been a trigger phrase for both of these groups, the liberal and conservative group. It's a dark moment in Jewish history at the end of Deuteronomy. And this is a description that neither group believed they would ever be compared to. Next he says, and this is just absolutely fascinating. He says, truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. So I want to study this phrase because the the English translation does it terrible injustice. This is actually a richly sarcastic phrase. It is actually what we would call a conditional clause. And translated accurately, it would mean If I give this generation a sign, I may die. Let me break it down for you. The first word in this phrase is a. It means if. If, and that second word, I'm not going to pronounce it for you. I can. I'm just kidding. (laughs) If I give. It's if I give you a sign. And here's the next word. If I give, that's the word te, that sign. That's what that word right there is, signia. Sound familiar? If I give that sign, the one that you're looking for, if I give that sign to this generation, that's the word taute means this. So if I give that to this, it's a conditional. Really, it's like saying, Dylan, if you don't stop wearing those Patriot shirts, I swear. (laughs) Here's what he's meaning, right? Here's what this conditional phrase means. No more signs from heaven for you. No more healings. No resurrection of your dead. No more feedings. You are a hopeless people. I'm done with you. You won't believe no matter what I do, no matter what I say. I am so over it. If I have to give you one more sign, I swear I'll die. That's what this word, or this phrase really means. It's not just, I'm not going to give you any more signs. It is a very rich, conditional, sarcastic sign, and it is very clear in the Greek construction what he is saying. Isn't that cool? And then Jesus does something pretty fascinating. He just turns on his heels and leaves. He just leaves them. No teaching, no explanation, no apology, no nothing. He just gets back in the boat and goes back across the lake. It's like Jesus saying, I should have never left the Gentiles in Decapolis. Wait a minute. Doesn't Jesus want everyone to believe? Would Jesus ever give up on anyone? Apparently, yes. Because he does here. And Paul explains this concept in Romans regarding those who are fully committed to their idolatry or their human spirituality. He says in Romans chapter 1, Therefore God gave them up, in the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. This was a passage that Paul was rebuking idolatrous uh, spiritual worship, worship that was founded in idolatry. 
and immoral acts within that idolatrous worship. And Paul was saying, these people God has turned and left. Imagine, how would you feel if Jesus said to you, you're hopeless. You won't believe no matter what. I'm not giving you any more sign, any more teaching, any more miracles. I'm going back to the Gentiles. Doesn't that sound tragic? People with, ex- people with extreme confidence in their human spirituality, yet they are so far from the truth, so disinterested in it, so hateful of it, that Jesus says, I'm going to have to abandon you to your own hearts. How do you feel about that? What ramifications does Jesus' attitude and actions have compared to the Jesus you think you know? Let's look at the personal side. I want to talk about human spirituality. What about us? What do we do? This is from my Sunday sermon preview this week. Is it possible for a spiritual person to be hopelessly disconnected from God? So let's just start with this fact. Human spirituality tends to do what these two groups in our study today did. Human spirituality wants to rely upon itself rather than God. And Paul has a great description for people who are like this. For I bear them witness, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they do not submit to God's righteousness. They have a zealousness for spiritual things, but they have no interest in them. Isn't that interesting? A zealousness for spiritual things, but no interest in them. So, I want to talk a little bit about the two conditions that are displayed today and how it relates to us. Spiritual, I want to talk about spiritual darkness. This would kind of be like the Sadducees. Sadly, the fact is every human, including you, is born into this world with a deep, dark spiritual blindness. People living in spiritual darkness convinced either there is no spiritual world or they have their own special insights into it that make them spiritually transcendent somehow. And spiritual knowledge is difficult, right, to to explain or define because spirituality, humanly speaking, spirituality in the world can be so subjective. But I'll try to be pithy. Here it is. You ready? It's the difference between spiritual confidence and spiritual humility. A lack of spiritual knowledge is a failure to comprehend your human depravity, corporately and individually. The idea, for example, that most people are basically good. You ever heard that? Most people are basically good. And, well, you know, I am most people, so by default I must be good. See how that works? If most people are basically good, well, certainly if 90% of the people in the world are good, I'm among that 90%, I'm good. You see how that kind of plays out? Nobody would say, most of humanity is basically good, but I am the rare exception. I'm terrible. (laughs) See, if your spirituality doesn't begin with the concept of depravity, you may have some zeal for spiritual things, but you have zero spiritual knowledge. It's a pseudo-spiritual naivete toward your own depravity 
and that of the world around you that makes you blind. So that's spiritual darkness. And then there's spiritual arrogance. That'd be more like the Pharisees, right? Sadly, there are many people today associated with Christianity that have great spiritual zeal, but no spiritual knowledge. They're in our churches. And a telltale symptom of this condition of spiritual arrogance is a judgmental spirit, arrogance in your own faith superiority over a lost world, Spiritual arrogance isn't just reserved for the religiously pious, though they are certainly good at it. Spiritual arrogance is also very prevalent and expresses itself in other ways, not just by religious people. Sometimes people mistake compassion for suffering people as spirituality. It's not. Sometimes people have this preachy, judgmental, political, or cultural wokeness that is arrogant both liberal and conservative, that is not spirituality. It is, in fact, arrogance. But spiritual arrogance can manifest itself in other ways, non-Christian ways. There can be this pride in a spiritual system of discipline that some guru taught you. And some people project their spiritual arrogance and superiority through their artistic expression. I mean, the more provocative your art is, the more spiritual you must be because you're in tune with the world around you. And it's really all the same trap, whether it's the moral arrogance or the secular arrogance or the spiritual darkness to begin with. It's all the same trap, which is this. Our own spiritual understanding can somehow connect us to the higher plane of spiritual existence. No, it can't. So let's talk about the spiritual cure. So this last section is kind of short. The fact of the matter is the gospel does have a cure for both spiritual darkness and arrogance. But you might say, but wait a minute, Pastor Joe. Aren't Christians just the same? I mean, we believe we have the absolute truth. Isn't that arrogant? See, there's a huge difference, though, between human spirituality and the spirituality that we are called to in the gospel of Jesus. And here's where it's different. The gospel teaches us you must come to grips with the fact that your human spirituality, religious or secular, is a waste of time and it is powerless. See, gospel spirituality starts with the acknowledgement of our total depravity and then goes to a humble reliance upon Jesus to heal it. Gospel spirituality doesn't teach that we can achieve a certain level, it starts with the acknowledgement that we have no spiritual understanding. Zero without Jesus. And he is the lone source of spiritual understanding. And gospel spirituality isn't born out of intelligence. It's not born out of education. It's not born out of life experience. It's not born out of religion. Gospel spirituality begins with brokenness and desperation and abandonment of all human spirituality. Gospel spirituality responds to this simple call from our Jesus. Come to me, all who are burdened with your sin, and I'll give you rest. 
And here's the great thing about gospel spirituality. Unlike what Jesus did on the dock that day, this kind of spirituality, Jesus will never leave or forsake. So instead of doing a closing prayer, I just want to say a couple things about some of the stuff that, and you guys can come up, some of the stuff that our church experienced this week. So when we started Grace Life, a really key family that helped us get these things going was Nehemiah and Meredith. We loved them. In many respects, we still consider them part of the Grace Life family. And um, was it about 18 months ago or two years ago? When? How long ago was she, did, did Meredith? About two years ago, she was diagnosed with cancer, and it's been a long battle, been some ups and downs. And we learned late this week that Meredith finally passed, and she gave in to this battle. And um, it kind of took a lot of us by surprise that know them very well, because we thought that there was some lighting in the tunnel, she might be making progress, and, this is, and it happened suddenly. But here's what I'll say about Meredith. She left an incredible gift for her family, which is this. There is no doubt, there is a preponderance of evidence that she had gospel spirituality. She had no reliance on human spirituality. Her reliance was completely on gospel spirituality. I don't know of somebody who has a more clear testimony of salvation through Jesus than she does. And so she's celebrating in heaven. We're the ones struggling. And we just want to make sure that we say to the Thompson family how much we adore you, we love you, and your Grace Life family is on the edge of our seat just waiting for you to tell us what it is you need from us. And I ask that all of us begin to pray for the Thompsons, for Nehemiah and his two girls and the parents. It's going to be a, a rough time for them, but we're going to be there and love them. And so I'm going to stop now, and, and we're going to do a closing song. And if I remember correctly, this, is, this was Meredith's favorite song.
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and may he give you peace. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And we, guess what? We're going to see you next week. Hey, let's go. One, two, three.